welcome. This is the second part of the introduction to the history of anatomy. Really, it's a story not just of anatomy, but more of its leading protagonist, the cadaver, that is our interest. And I think also of the history of its willing or unwilling dissection in the discovery of the interior of the human body. I might start perhaps with a quote from David Hume's selections. Um, Indulge your passion for science, but let your science be human. Be a philosopher, but amidst all of your philosophy, be still a man. The study of the anatomy of the human body has many possible beginnings, perhaps with Herophilus of Chalcedon or Erasistratus of Chios, Hippocrates of Cos or Galen of Pergamon. So too has it been subject to different periods of renewal, particularly after it fell dormant in the Western Hemisphere between the fall of Rome and the birth of the Renaissance. After its revival, each dissection school became the centrepiece of fledgling universities from Padua to Bologna, Montpellier to Leiden and Amsterdam. This sine wave of anatomical interest and activity was the social mirror of the time, the gap of intellectual endeavour directly connected to the sombre silence of the Dark Ages. It was only when the scholastic St Jerome and St Augustine were forming early Christian dogma and reconciling it with pagan Aristotelian thought that the anatomy of the Greek Galen was infused into the new theology. Although, as far as we know, Aristotle never dissected a human being, his study of animals formed the accepted theological basis for the inner workings of man. And along with the dissection treatise of Galen, his De Usu Partium Corporis Humani, all other forms of life. Even human temperament was Galenic. The personality and the genesis of illnesses a reflection of the balance or perhaps the upset of the basic humours, the phlegm, the black and yellow bile and the blood. And their remnants persist in the descriptions of phlegmatic, bilious and sanguine temperaments. As the race and spirit took hold of art and architecture, sculpture and music, each was still imbued with a newfound vitality which could only be adequately captured by rediscovering the ancient texts. In this, it was only anatomy, really, which lagged behind in its intellectual development, unable to forge itself as a distinct conceptual discipline and wholly reliant for its prosecution <coughs> through dissection of the corpse on die-hard enthusiasts who needed the permission either of royal patrons or the tolerance of enlightened popes. When the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, 1195 to 1250, established the infrastructure of the university at Salerno and then Naples, he decreed that everyone studying medicine must have exposure to the dissection of a corpse, a procedure which should be performed, at least in his opinion and according to edict, at least once every five years. Far from the impression that the church was an obstacle to the performance of dissection, many examinations of the dead took place in monasteries and chapels for want of better places or directly under the auspices of the church in the divination, for example, of whether some dead monk or nun had any presumptive signs of sainthood. The battlegrounds for discord with church doctrines were in two principal physical areas, cosmology and human anatomy, and there are similarities between these. The first reconciling the Ptolemaic charts of the Almagest with those of the church had placed fear in the heart of Nicholas Copernicus, so much so that his De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium in 1543, outlining a heliocentric universe, was only really released by his friend the Lutheran preacher Andreas Osiander just before Copernicus died. 
the power actually, uh, parenthetically, of a geocentric universe forced a formal recantation of his telescopic findings by Galileo in 1633. And it also resulted in Giordano Bruno, uh, 1548 to 1600, to be burned at the stake for suggesting that the universe was infinite. Bruno's works were placed into the Index Librorum Prohibitorum, which was a canon of censored works, the first of which was the 1486 oration on the dignity of man by Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, 1463-1494, which tried to reconcile the Christian faith with other religions. That's getting a little off topic, but we'll come back to those candidates later and to one Michael Servetus, also burned at the stake uh, for suggesting a range of anatomical variations from church edict. The church dictated a theological brand of anatomy alongside its other assessment of cosmology, and that relied on dissections of Galen and the tenets of Aristotle, and they would not brook any particular dissenters. I'll come back to that issue in another podcast. Human dissection has a rich and complicated history with the cadaver serving as an instrument of instruction, as an anatomical tutor. Dissection, however, signifies more than an organised dismemberment of bodily parts, encompassing the corpse not only as a scientific tool, but as a constructed social comment on how we view death and its vessel, the body. Today, dissection of the corpse is carried out in the reserved atmosphere and the private enclaves of university anatomy departments. But once it was a public spectacle, most commonly performed upon an executed criminal by a municipal appointee whose task may have been to teach the anatomy to interested parties, but who performed it in a place and at a time where there was also a deeply religious subtext to the dissection framed around punishment and redemption. It might also seem the most natural thing in the world that anyone teaching such a visual project as the anatomy evident in the dissection of a human body would best be supported by representative images. It's the brief of these podcasts to also examine that shared bond between anatomy and art and to discover how the dissection of the cadaver actually came to be illustrated. In anatomy, as in other forensic activity, a picture is, as they say, worth more than a thousand words. But to ask what intimate connection draws anatomy to art, and vice versa, is a simple enough question, uh, whose explanations are complex. For one thing, the associations between anatomists and artists vary not only in their closeness, but in their mechanics. The imperatives of both differ, the anatomist demanding an unwavering accuracy, with the artist driven sometimes in a different direction, by an impulse of artistic licence and individuality. Art, too, is more than mere representation. It is interpretation, a fluid responsiveness drawn from the spectator with which the rigid and reproducible anatomical structures share little common ground. More than this, the illustration of the dissected body will have different meaning and significance depending upon its target audience, which will range from the purely didactic right up and, or, or perhaps even down to the voyeuristic. Such an impression also has a sense of history, a Victorian audience, for example, finding that anatomical museums might have been the only sanctioned places to view naked men and women. If one imagines art and anatomy like a Venn diagram, the subsets under consideration would only minimally overlap, and caught within the penumbra of that intersection are the relatively rare examples of artists whom we're fairly certain dissected the cadaver. And that includes Antonio Paolo Wolo, Luca Signorelli, <coughs> Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo Buonarroti, Rosso Fiorentino, Jacopo Tortormo, Jacopo Tintoretto, 
Vincenzo Danti, Alessandro Allori, Pietro Francavia. On the other side are anatomists who illustrated their own work, people like Friedrich Reich, Antonio Scarpa, John and Charles Bell, Henry van Dyck Carter, or Frank Netter, for example. Realising the scope of the brief and their own limitations in its visual expression, the one needed to seek out the other for instruction. Now, I know that these lists above that I've created earlier, just now, are not comprehensive, but I'll focus on only a few in each group, more as a sort of conceptual analysis of their connection. It is this intercept, principally in the manner in which anatomy informs art, rather than the other way around, that is part of what I want to discuss. The idea that a concerted curriculum of human dissection should be formally illustrated was probably first that of the French anatomist Charles Estienne, 1504-64, who proposed an elaborate set of drawings of the different systems of the human body, which he, like his contemporary Vesalius, had called a fabric. Estienne unfortunately had so many disagreements with his printers that his three-volume series wasn't published until two years after Vesalius's Fabrica. Uh, Vesalius had far better networking throughout Europe, and he established by sheer dint of personality a dynamic new method of hands-on dissection which swept through the principal European universities by heretically taking down the prevailing Galenic dogma. Despite the fact that Estienne's brother, for example, was a printer and that his notes and some images were started as a potential book as early as 1535, he wasn't able to publish his elaborate De Dissectione Partium Corporis Humani until 1545, two years after Vesalius. And it's interesting, really, I think, to speculate on how differently we would have viewed Estienne if he were actually the first person to put out an illustrated anatomy book rather than Vesalius. But both men, of course, had a very different personality and a different kind of pedagogic drive. For example, with Vesalius, the first-hand accounts of his dissections after the Bolognese Council had invited him to a makeshift open-air anatomy class wrote of a very charismatic, energetic and provocative showman who wasn't afraid to demonstrate the anatomy he had already dissected and to engage in rowdy debate rather than sitting up high in some lectern and like his other professors of anatomy just reading uh, books aloud to a bored audience. Uh, one of the chroniclers was uh, a gentleman called Baldassare Hessler who wrote in a book called Andres Vesalius' First Public Anatomy at Bologna 1540 an eyewitness report, together with his notes on Matthias Curtius's lectures on uh, Anatomia Mundini. Um, it was a diary that was discovered and published by the head librarian of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, uh, uh, a gentleman called Ruben Eriksson. Hessler was a student from Lignitz, uh, which is uh, now Lignitsa in Poland, and uh, he had studied under Martin Luther and attended 26 lectures and demonstrations in all by Vesalius. As it was, the decision by Vesalius to employ a trained and famous artist to provide the illustrations for his Fabrica Corporis Humani began a tradition that in some ways surpassed the text itself, making it iconographically the most successful anatomy book in Europe for the next 200 years. From then on, at least for a while, it resulted in acceptance of a new philosophy towards the illustration of anatomical dissections with artists, in some cases truly great artists, vying to accompany jobbing surgeons so that they could represent the interior of the human body, not only with accuracy, but with a sanitised beauty. This connection between the human body not only... Um, anatomist and artist, however, remained close as long as there were things to discover. As anatomy became more defined and reached its finite exploratory boundaries by the mid-18th century, most of the macroscopically evident structures, what we call the gross anatomy, 
had been discovered and named, and the protagonists of our story, the artist and the anatomist, began to mutually drift apart. By the 19th century, anatomic illustration is exemplified in the style of the most famous anatomy book of its time, Henry Gray's Anatomy Descriptive and Surgical, which came out in 1858, colloquially now known as Gray's, had become less baroque in its production. It eschewed the imagery, the ornate landscapes that typically adorned the background to dissected pieces, and it focused on a more schematic and wholly dispassionate artistic style. Such a choice was not only pragmatic, but moral, as Gray's illustrator, Dr Henry Van Dyke Carter, 1831-97, deliberately chose not to insert either subliminally or overtly the notations of his predecessors. Gone were the small messages of mortality, the memento mori of a life well lived and a death well born, the religious tropes honouring the will of God, and the reminders of the brevity of existence or the penalties for impiety. One might reasonably say that after Gray's, the artistic representation of anatomy and trading style for a sterile precision lost a bit of its soul. Improvements in the microscope at the other end of the spectrum between the visible and invisible anatomies created fresh opportunities for artistic collaboration, but the newer images of both the macroscopic and the microscopic became over time rather mechanistic and were the province more of technically competent draftsmen than of truly great artists. The personal fellowship enjoyed between the 18th century London anatomist William Hunter, 1716 to 1783, and the president of the Royal Academy of Arts, Sir Joshua Reynolds, 1723 to 1792, led to Hunter's appointment as the Academy's first professor of anatomy, where his brief was to teach the budding artists the contours of the body, its surface anatomy, and the relationship of the skin to the patterns of movement of the muscles underneath. Actually, after King George III established the Royal Academy of Arts in 1768, that was the same year that William Hunter set up his large private anatomy theatre in Great Windmill Street, Hunter was appointed... Uh, as the first professor of anatomy at the uh, Academy of Arts. And he maintained his association uh, as a fine connoisseur and also collector of arts. In 1776, Hunter and the company of surgeons actually acquired a body, that of a smuggler, James Langer, who was hanged on the 12th of April, which was in such good condition that Hunter and his students flayed it of its skin and then positioned the body before rigor mortis set in in the manner of the dying Gaul, which was a well-known classical sculpture of a gladiator, which had originally been commissioned by Attalus I of Pergamon to celebrate the victory by the Greeks over the Gauls in Anatolia in 230 BC. Hunter then had the model cast by the sculptor Agostino Carlini and christened it Smuglerius, uh, in the sort of Latin cognomen that one did at that time. And the original bronze cast's actually been lost, but there are two plaster copies. You can still see them. One's at the Royal Academy of Arts, and there's another one, uh, which is in the Edinburgh College of Art. So there was this com- complex connection, rather close or intimate connection, between artists and anatomists, which we don't have, in a sense, today. There are life drawing classes, but they're, they're not the same sort of level of connection. When art and anatomy were more integrated in their training than they are now, so too was the dialogue reciprocated between artists and anatomists. That conversation, which had been started by Hunter over the dissection of cadavers, was completed in the academy, the same academy, by the sculptor John Flaxman, 1755 to 1826, who delivered his lecture on science, the reverse kind of lecture, explaining to his art students the Socratic view of what he called, quote, the circle of knowledge, unquote. And it positioned the study and the exposition of the human form as the principal objective of all art. Those were in Flaxman's lectures called On Sculpture, which were posthumously published in 1829 as a tribute to Flaxman by Sir Richard Westmacott. Now, despite all this rather unique association, an anatomy-art collaboration actually failed to flourish after Hunter. 
At times when there was a shortage of cadavers to examine, some artists even became the principal dissectors of the human body and were an important font of anatomical knowledge, even when it was hardly natural that they should complement one another in any body narrative. But from then on, the imperative of the anatomists was discovery, and in their zeal, attaching their names eponymously to almost every structure, surface or space that their dissection revealed, they were not unlike the explorers and navigators around them seeking their own new worlds. It's, I suppose, not unreasonable to question whether some can lay claim to discovering something that, of course, has always been there. The 16th century anatomist Gabriele Fallopio, 1523 to 1562, and Real de Colombo, 1515 to 1559, had as an example both fought over the discovery, if one can use that word, of the clitoris. As Jacqueline Duffin, a Canadian haematologist and historian, has asserted, quote, the body is not simply a human continent waiting to be explored, unquote. She had written that in her History of Medicine, a scandalously short introduction which was published by the University of Toronto Press in 1999. Students still, however, flocked to the lectures of those who had so named a particular tubercle, fissure, canal, prominence, aqueduct or foramen, and they did so with the same level of excitement that would be afforded returning mariners back from discovery of their own eponymously entitled inlet or peninsula or cove. This topic really, so broadly covering the history of anatomy, will inevitably transform into one that examines the way anatomy through dissection of the corpse can touch other parts of society. I've rather arbitrarily divided it up along chronological lines in that assessment, even if there is in this division some overlap of the cast of characters. And we'll begin in the next podcast with a brief overview of the ideas and the styles which underpin anatomical illustration. Most who used pictures to supplement their anatomy were governed by a teaching imperative, even if they were not, in some cases, have been much of dissectors themselves. Many, like Vesalius's teacher, Gunther of Andernach, 1505-1574, admitted as much in his personal diary. But such a polymath as Gunther was not so much interested in new discovery, but in setting the boundaries of Galenic thought. In his translations of Galen, Gunther was a serious teacher, who was self-taught in ancient Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and a smattering of Arabic. Such a linguistic apprenticeship would have been necessary even to understand many of the books that Gunther would have consulted. It was a different type of animal attracted to anatomy in that uh, pre-Renaissance and Renaissance era. The erudition of some of these early anatomists supported their belief that good illustrations of dissections were more scientific instruments than artistic tools, but it might be conceded that they were appealing to a rather sophisticated audience or at least comparatively so. But behind the manner in which each of these picture styles conferred an authenticity onto the representation of the concrete anatomy itself, there was an underlying philosophy which governed what the artists wanted their images to say and quite how they intended to say it. The mannerisms of the images are products of their time. The Renaissance imagery superimposed with allegory, religious reference, macabre symbolism, if not a decent helping of gallows humour. As anatomist and artist continued to maintain a mutual interest in the body, there is within the images an almost palpable conflict that becomes evident, the anatomist striving for an exacting precision, whilst the artist yearned for individuality. Now, there are notable examples not only of this battle, but of the usual supremacy of the anatomist over the artist. Rarely, however, the artist was able to gain the upper hand. It was how one of the inventors of the intaglio technique of coloured mezzotint, Jacques-Fabien Gautier d'Agoutier, 1716-1785, convinced his anatomist, Guichard Joseph Duvernay, 1648-1730, to 
to perform more and more erotic dissections of the genitalia as a resource for his provocative paintings. In Marseille, Dugotti painted the vulva with a raw sexual brutality at a time when across the English Channel, William Hunter was imploring his artist, Jan van Rimstik, to cover the genitalia at every opportunity. I should point out that Dugatti claimed to be the inventor of the technique of mezzotint, which used primarily coloured images as overlays onto a conventional tonal mezzotint. Actually, the invention is more correctly attributed to Christophe Leblanc, if, if anyone's going to object to that. That the art of the human body as dissected by Vesalius later became so iconic throughout Europe signified how much it was known, even to the illiterate classes and to those whose Latin was pretty poor. His images recreated the artistry of the scientific drawing even before there was a notion of science, and they were the equivalent of the incunabula, those beautifully illustrated manuscripts and copies of the Bible written and drawn in the monasteries before the invention of the printing press. In essence, there was essentially no difference in the ultimate goal between the most moving fresco and any of Vesalius's musclemen, since both, through different paths, were designed to reveal the works of God. After Vesalius, the marriage on the page of both image and text became the new anatomical teaching tradition, even if there was little in the immediate period after his death by way of new discovery in anatomy. That would begin almost a century later. In later podcasts, we're going to talk about some other issues, and I'll just outline those, and then we can finish off. Uh, the one after the discussion of the brief history of illustration is on autopsy. It's a reasonable place to start in the story of dissection since a general acceptance by the public of post-mortem examination of the dead permitted a wider tolerance towards dissection if it was to be performed for purely inquisitive reasons. In the 13th century, even though autopsy was designed to decide about unexplained death, its familiar use greatly influenced the social acceptability of cadaveric dissection which might have been performed for other purposes, and it was no accident that such practices began in Italy, heavily reliant upon papal sanction. At the start of the Renaissance, the Church actually facilitated, at least for a while, the dissecting habits of the artists, each with their quest to portray an anatomic realism and a proportionality in their paintings and sculptures not seen since ancient times, so all of these things were tied together, the artistry and even the conduct of autopsy and dissection. The enthusiasm for dissection displayed either by the artist or the anatomist was somewhat dependent upon the matter, of course, of acquiring a corpse. Most artists, like Michelangelo, 1475 to 1564, and his pupil, Alessandro Allori, 1535 to 1607, or the reclusive Jacopo da Portormo, 1494 to 1557, most of those artists gagged at the sight of dissections, but they recognised them as a necessary evil if they were ever to depict with some accuracy the contours of the body and the muscular arrangements lying tantalisingly just beneath the surface. The artist and art chronicler Giorgio Vasari, 1511 to 1574, singled out his favourite artisans, Leonardo and Michelangelo, both symbols of a perfected skill, one in perspective and the other in marble, whose brief was not only the emulation of the visible nature, but who were men capable of surpassing nature herself. In his 1550 lives of the most eminent painters, sculptors and architects, Vasari divided the periods of art into the first transition, heralded by Giotto, the second, an age of grace, manifested by Masaccio, Donatello and Brunelleschi, and a divine third age, which included his beloved contemporaries, Leonardo, Michelangelo, who was his favourite, Raphael, Titian and Correggio. Both artists, that is both Leonardo and Michelangelo, would argue through their working lives over the supremacy of their favoured medium, painting or sculpture. 
but regardless of which reigned as the better channel conveying beauty, both have embodied the finest executions of the human form with an almost divine grace. In getting to that place, however, both had used the dissection of the human body as a means towards the betterment of their art. But only Leonardo, obsessed with function as much as with form, had dissected his corpses for their own sake. And there is a podcast specifically on this which speculatively and comparatively considers the motivations in the dissection of cadavers by both men. A a further podcast is concerned with the cult of personality of Vesalius, who, descending into the pit to perform dissections himself, rekindled an enthusiasm for anatomy which had not been seen since Galen, physician to the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, had written of his dissections of pigs and the macaca sylvanus, the old world macaque ape. The Vesalian technique of dissection was an expression of empirical observation so influential that all anatomists could effectively consider themselves as pre- or post-Vesalians in a manner that any temporal association with Galen could never achieve in the eyes of historians. That was the level of Vesalius's importance. Although Galen had intoned his students of anatomy to learn by dissecting bodies, Galenic dogma was taught not through participation in dissection, but rather through the reading of his books. Reading aloud to students, professors firmly implanted in their chairs taught the works of Galen whilst the surgeon actually dissected the body, and an attendant called an astensor, who might be a little like a mortuary attendant now, pointed to the parts that matched the spoken and the written word. In dissecting bodies for himself, the young Vesalius had hoped to confirm, not refute his masters, but finding such discord between what they taught and what he saw, his revolution was to convert anatomy from an oral, A-U-R-A-L, to a visual tradition something we mentioned earlier. It was not enough to simply hear the words of anatomy. For Vesalius, one had to see for oneself. Ex fide oculata, seeing with the faith of one's own eyes, was a mantra which was borrowed from his mentor Gunther, but which turned Vesalius into a European sensation. With some paranoia, Vesalius sent the woodblocks of Van Kalka's images for the Fabrica over the Alps by mule to the printer Johannes Operinus in Basel. Vesalius was right to be concerned, since many would soon plagiarise and disseminate his work with printing runs of his dissected bodies and skeletons. Although Vesalius was actually one of the first anatomists to exploit the printing press to his advantage, he whined in letters to his brother about the irreverent copying of his work, which was something he did not anticipate. Um, But I must say that Vesalius seemed more concerned in these letters about the fact that his work had been translated into Spanish than that his beloved pictures had actually been stolen. Initially invited by Gunther to assist in a new translation of Galen, Vesalius quickly came to realise that Galen had never dissected a human being and that the Galenic texts were often mistaken. Starting out to confirm Galen's dogma, Vesalius ended up by producing a book that positioned itself as the new anatomy by virtue more of where it differed from Galen than from where it agreed. Introducing accurate anatomical illustrations presaged the birth of a new science. I don't think it's a too strong a point to suggest that. How science conceptually began and how anatomy took on its scientific mantle is considered beyond uh, this. Here, science is expressed by the advancement of hypotheses for how the physical world worked and where simply designed experiments could either refute or confirm the novelty of those suggested mechanisms. The genius of that new science was in the structure imposed by its methods, which were applicable to all things, and which ultimately saw the raw data obtained from observation of the physical world transform in the minds of Galileo, Kepler and Newton into immutable laws governing the structure of the universe and predicting the movements of the planets and the visible stars. This is the subject of the next podcast. 
As the age moved from medievalism to modernity, the experimental method conferred a legitimacy on all things that were designated as scientific, and science shed an intimacy with truth in the way the other natural philosophies with their metaphysical uncertainties could not. Alchemy was jettisoned from chemistry, astrology from cosmology, and magic and superstition withdrew from view and authority. Anatomy, accepting the trappings of this new method, developed as its own discrete discipline under the broader scientific rubric. Its grimy anatomists then became men of science with the authority of truth and method behind them. The philosopher René Descartes, 1596-1650, could never have acquired his knowledge of the human brain without a general acceptance of the legitimate right of some to dissect it. This too was a product which spawned a philosophical humanism that permitted the public anatomization of criminals. Already by the 16th century, judges throughout Europe had been given the discretion by royal assent to add the ignominy of dissection of the body, anatomization, onto a sentence of execution for a capital crime. Hardened criminals rightly feared it, even if such an addition never really served as a strict deterrent for the commission of capital offences. But if the tangible threat of dissection after execution was never going to be a deterrent, it was still something that the average criminal found personally and religiously abhorrent. The social consequence, however, of the judges aligning with this double sentence, execution and anatomization, were wide-ranging. With this gesture and a series of direct royal decrees allocating a minimum number of bodies to dissect each year to the colleges and guilds of surgeons, the corpus became, as the historian Ruth Richardson so aptly puts it, quote, a commodity, unquote. This aside, one response was witnessing less than distinguished surgeons fighting over the body remains in the very shadow of the gallows with the relatives of those executed. Another was the direct complicity by surgeons in the nefarious practices of grave robbing and body snatching and worse for the sole purpose of a chance to dismember corpses. The story of this body trafficking has been told before but it ties into the imperative needs of the developing medical schools in what Jonathan Sorday has referred to as, quote, the culture of dissection, unquote. It's a transatlantic story that nevertheless fuels our narrative of the invention of body art at a time when the provenance of so many illustrated cadavers was distinctly unclear. The social response to this execution dissection practice was to turn it into a public show. Tickets were sold and students were obliged to give way in the front rows to conciliary, visiting dignitaries, sheriffs, politicians, cardinals and university professors. Once it was realised that there was such an interest, these advertised events were shifted from under makeshift canopies in open-air piazzas or from the side chapels of churches to dedicated theatre anatomia, like the Weyhouse in Amsterdam, the building which is still there, or the anatomical theatre in Leiden. These buildings became tourist attractions which raised the prestige of the universities and which drew overseas students and graduates not only because of the reputations of their local professors of anatomy, but because they became centres of clinical anatomical research. Actually, the Amsterdam Waghaus uh, in New Market Street is now a trendy restaurant. The public ritualistic nature of these performances, frequently overlain with intensely religious connotations, served, however, a broader moralistic purpose. They were a civic show of the power of the state, securely entitled to render such a savage verdict on those who had contravened its most serious laws. And through the meme of sacrifice, there was advantage for both dissector and dissected. Anatomists could justify their unremitting thirst for each dissection with the promise that it would advance a personal and a collective scientific knowledge. For the reprobate, either willingly or reluctantly bound to a dissected fate in this last act, there was the redemptive hope 
for salvation. These communal activities became so popular that they attracted painters, many of whom deliberately changed their artistic style towards communal portraiture, so suiting the guilds of surgeons who commissioned their likenesses mid-dissection for posterity, in precisely the same way that other group portraits had been contracted by prosperous merchants and aldermen, guildsmen and guardsmen. The rather specific collection of 17th and 18th century northern Dutch paintings which feature groups of surgeons around either a corpse or a skeleton or with the city's praelector anatomiae, an official elected to perform annual public dissections, is seen using the corpse as a teaching instrument, forms a somewhat artificial group of paintings which we could call or designate the anatomical portraits and they're the subject of another podcast. Within this compendium are two masterpieces executed by Rembrandt, and the story of these paintings depicting the life of the dissecting anatomists is told as the new Dutch Republic emerged from the Eighty Years' War that split the Catholic Spanish crown off from the Protestant South. With the national enrichment afforded from the trade surplus of the Dutch East India Company, there were astonishingly over one million portraits commissioned in the country between 1600 and 1700 alone, and the anatomy paintings were among those. The problem still remained the necessity to complete a dissection as rapidly as possible, given the speed of inexorable decomposition. Splitting up bodies was an ephemeral business. After only a few days, the intestines produced an intolerable stench and the brain became a putrid and liquefied mess. Vesalius had changed all of that with an image, the pictures powerful and permanent records of these short-lived events. But without any means of preservation of the corpse, the anatomists were forced to perform their annual shows in the dead of winter in a forlorn effort to retard decay. It confined their spectacles to only a few days after which the rotten corruption of the tissues made the body virtually impossible to work with. In developing a secret formula for preserving the cadaver, one prelector, Friedrich Reich, 1638-1731, was able to produce specimens so lifelike that when his Amsterdam cabinet of curiosities, his so-called Wunderkammer, was visited by Tsar Peter the Great, officially on a visit to build his defensive navy against attack by Sweden, the Russian leader mistakenly bent down to kiss one of the embalmed children. According to the uh, uh, chronicler Bernard Le Bouvier de Fontenelle, in his Éloge des Académiciens, the um, Tsar, quote-unquote, tenderly kissed the body of a small child, still lovable, who seemed to smile at him. However apocryphal such a story, Reich became so famous for his preservation of cadavers that when he turned 90 on the death of Sir Isaac Newton, the Académie des Sciences in Paris appointed Reich to Newton's place. We don't seem to know that much about him, but uh, he's a fascinating individual who um, forms uh, a further podcast discussion. Reich was a deeply religious man who himself, a consummate artist, spent his life constructing fragile dioramas, all of which have sadly perished, that he landscaped with the preserved parts of stillborn babies. And the effects of his little morality plays were so riveting that Peter had the entire collection shipped to his new museum, which he called the Kunstkammer, the House of Wonders. And that museum was established on... Vasilevsky Island in 1718 along the River Never, the collection arriving with a uh, letter uh, which too has been uh, lost detailing Reich's secret preserving formula. If you think about it, the establishment of Peter's Museum uh, with Reich's anatomical curios as its centrepieces prophetically predated the opening of London's British Museum by 35 years. Thirty years later, after the opening of the Reich Museum uh, in St. Petersburg and following the method precisely, the physician Johann Christoph Rieger, 1696 to 1774, was unable to 
reproduce an embalmed baby that had the vivacity of any um, uh, of uh, Reich's specimens in the rest of the collection. By the middle of the 18th century, however, the synergy between anatomy and art had altered its focus with a concomitant shift in the respected centres of anatomical teaching from the Netherlands and France to London and later Edinburgh. In London, William Hunter and his brother John had opened the first private anatomy school in Great Windmill Street. William was an effete dandy who, when he was not delivering the babies of Queen Charlotte, was busy collecting great paintings and ancient coins. The younger brother, far more headstrong and lit by a brighter spark of inquiry that extended to the dissection of a wide variety of animal species, was busy establishing a scientific code of practice that used his clinic as a living laboratory, reporting everything from the growth of the teeth and the natural course of venereal disease to the best management of musket ball wounds. Whilst running their elite private school, their lives were dominated by daily dissections and discovery and centred around the business of body acquisition and the production of the most exquisite processions for display. It was these that formed the basis for their vast private collections. As the world outside was hunting out the skulls and skeletons of indigenous tribes and desecrating native colonial burial grounds, surgeons and anatomists back in Europe were using the measurements of these bones to define a hierarchy of ethnicity and an overarching vision concerning the ascent of man. London became a beacon for the private anatomical museums which sprang up in competitive fashion and which sported all manner of human monstrosities to buy for the public's almost limitless appetite for freak shows. At the world-class Alfort Veterinary School in Paris, its director, Honoré Fragonard, 1732-1799, curated a collection of skinned human bodies which took pride of place amid a treasure trove of equine skeletons and the dissected organs of diverse animals infected with unique parasites. Um, in uh, uh, one of the podcasts of this series, I discuss the genesis of these private anatomical collections and their contrast with the newly forming public museum spaces. As museums like London's Britain's, uh, British uh, Museum and the Natural History Museum began to exert their popular dominance, displaying the skeletons and artefacts of the New World, there was a conscious decision made by their respective directors, Sir Hans Sloan, 1660 to 1753, and Sir Richard Owen, 1804 to 1892, to shy away from publicly showing these sorts of distorted congenital malformations that could be found in the private houses of many of the nearby anatomists. Fresh from his analysis of Darwin's 1859 publication, Origin of the Species, Owen preferred to focus on a museum narrative which highlighted human ethnography, the recently discovered fossils, and the anthropological development of mankind. The ripples of these ethnic thefts and displays as fodder for the museum narratives are felt today in the cries for reparations and the return of stolen artefacts. Dissection might have enjoyed an overrated reputation for bravado, boyish pranksterism and gallows humour, but its apprenticeship was in truth a grim business, forcing its practitioners into cramped, dimly lit corridors and cellars, their hands continually greasy from having to push away half-solidified fat in order to identify important nerves and vessels, their clothes encrusted with blood and excretions, and about them always a lingering, fetid smell of rotting flesh. There had always been an imperative to substitute the experience of dissection with some sanitised simulacrum. Artists like Michelangelo preferred their little models of the human form made of wax, wood, bronze, ivory or even wool. Vesalius had created his fugitive sheets which were diagrams of the organs drawn to scale but he plastered onto real bones so that they could be lifted off in layers to convey a three-dimensional impression of anatomical depth. The height of this 18th century mimicry came from an extensive collaboration between anatomists in Bologna and Florence with the most talented modellers to produce breathtaking wax sculptures of the internal human anatomy. These seroplastic masters decamped to both cities, establishing a tradition of fierce rivalry. The Bolognese, led by Ercolelli, 1702-1766, and the husband and wife team of Giovanni Mansolini, 1700-1755, and Anna Morandi Mansolini, 
1774. The exemplars of the Florentines included Gaetano Giulio Zumbo, 1656-1701, and later Clemente Sussini, 1754-1814. With these opposing museums of wax for a while amongst the most popular museums in Europe, the story of these rival collections is briefly told in uh, one of the podcasts of this series. As the public faces of these more universal museums were busy sanitising their exhibits, the hunters were moving in an entirely different direction that would spell the death knell to the private anatomy collections. Both hunters were likely uh, likely complicit in the ongoing clandestine trades of body snatching and grave robbing, which were needed to feed an insatiable hunger for dead bodies by clinicians and medical schools provided an inadequate supply from the courts of justice. William Hunter's response was to produce what at the time was regarded as his finest work, his 1774 Anatomy of the Gravid Uterus, a giant, almost life-sized atlas of the post-mortem dissections of heavily pregnant women anatomised by his brother John and accumulated over 25 years. For the unique pictures, William sought out the professional painter Jan van der Rimsdijk to lovingly produce his intimate red chalk drawings of the foetus trapped in a disembodied uterus. It was a collaboration between anatomist and artist over a quarter of a century, the like of which had not been seen before or since. It is an example of Baroque excess, imprisoned by its own indifference, the women spectacularly drawn, but without faces and as mere vehicles of confinement. The uterus in many has been peeled open like an orange and the legs amputated mid-thigh, These disconnected bodies and uteri are shorn of any semblance of external genitalia. Hunter, without a trace of ethical angst, failed in his introduction to the book to even acknowledge either the work of the artist or the sacrifice of the women. What drove both hunters and their rivalry is the subject of a podcast in this series. The reputation of the surgeons had taken a substantial hit with their collusion in many cases with marauding gangs which formed the necessity to feed the anatomists' limitless desire to dissect. In the United Kingdom, these scruffy and often violent bands were the resurrectionists and in the United States, the sack-em-up men. But it took the shocking prosecution of two notorious rogues to force Parliament to act and pass new legislation as the Anatomy Act of 1832. Both men, William Burke and William Hare, could claim no apprenticeship as resurrectionists, rather having decided to murder 16 vulnerable people in Edinburgh over an 18-month spree and to hand them over for cash to the dissecting school of the Professor of Anatomy, Robert Knox, 1791-1863. Even if this act had stopped the fights between the families of the deceased the surgeon's agents over the bodies of those who had been executed at London's hanging tree at Tyburn, all it did was to make those others who were tired and overworked and who died in the workhouses and the infirmaries the new dissecting fodder. This is old ground, but I discuss in a podcast in this series the origins of the select parliamentary committee that mandated this legislation and the changing dynamic of how the medical schools acquired their bodies through the mid-1800s. In the United Kingdom, the Anatomy Act may well have started out as a prized piece of legislation offered up by parliamentary utilitarian stalwarts and idealists who proposed that anyone donating their body for dissection after death would be serving a common good. But in making it law that bodies in the hospitals and workhouses could be used for dissection if no one objected or laid claim to them within 48 hours of death, All the best-intentioned lead legislators, like Henry Warburton, MP, had succeeded in doing, was to ensure the ultimate punishment of the poor. Such legislation, however, was not planned, proffered and enacted in a social vacuum. It was encouraged by an environment that was a constant reminder of the opinion men of privilege like the surgeons entertained about the working class. As a measure of this prevailing mood, I've included the story of the hapless Stephen Pollard, a farmer from near Lewes in East Sussex, whose surgeon, Sir Bransby Cooper, 1792-1853, in cutting for a bladder stone, botched the surgery and killed the patient. 
after Thomas Walkley, 1795 to 1862, the editor of the Lancet magazine, published the ghastly outcome in an article that mercilessly admonished Cooper, the St George's surgeon felt compelled to sue for libel. But in winning his case, Bransby was awarded the paltry sum of £100 damages, although it didn't stop him returning afterwards to a successful surgical life. With Cooper, a nephew of the leading surgeon of the hospital, Sir Astley, the case more specifically threw light upon nepotism in clinical appointments, but it was more a symbol of a social sickness and a lightning rod for a raft of changes in public health. The anatomist Henry Gray enters St George's Hospital, London, with now a glut of perfectly dissectable corpses provided by the enactment of the Anatomy Act. Gray enlists the aid of Henry Van Dyke Carter, and together they transform the way anatomy is taught and pictured in their 1858 book Gray's Anatomy, which in short order becomes, and then remains, the most successful anatomy textbook in history. But the artistic approach of the book traded the antiquated and moralistic images that backgrounded the figures of the body and other texts for a simply more delineated style, which from then on, before the photograph, became the designer manner of anatomical art. With Carter's philosophy formulating an expectation of what scientific illustration should look like, the body art of the interior took a back seat to the anatomy, achieving a sterility that subordinated style for substance. And for the art curator Deanna Petherbridge, that choice alone was a signal by Graham Carter of a, quote, suppression of visual aspiration, unquote. Gray and his influence on anatomy is the subject of a podcast in this series. It's impossible to know whether his composed imagery would have evolved any more had he not died of smallpox when he was just 34 years old. But there were already factors beyond Gray which in their representation of the corpse no longer relied on any artistic verisimilitude. When the artist Paul de la Roche, 1797-1856, saw the first daguerreotype photograph, he lamented that, quote, from today, painting is dead, unquote. And its introduction relieved the pressure on the anatomical artists for any obsessive mimicry. There was a similar sentiment expressed when the first X-rays of the chest abruptly displaced the hallowed clinical examination, which up until then was the subjective diagnostic tool sans pareil for the scourge of tuberculosis. Since then, with the relentless rise of the new progeny of radiological descriptors like the CAT scan or the magnetic resonance image, the MRI, the positron emission tomogram, the PET scan, there's been an accepting social familiarity with and indeed even an expression of the power of body imagery. The ultrasound scans too have become indispensably inserted into our social narrative as each modality has been introduced in search of a new representative anatomy, each has offered a different take on body transparency, and the significance of the new radiology for anatomical interpretation is part of this podcast series. The digital era has hyper-processed the image. Computer programs which cleave pixels off of the contoured surfaces of fetal bodies or which use complex algorithms to dissect the grayscale of the interior of a solid organ have resulted in a novel dimensionality. But this ability to squeeze the most out of a body image by the twiddle of dials has become integral to subtle analysis. The manipulated image may be quite artificial, but its diagnoses are very real. Rather than there being an objection to the fidelity of an image by virtue of its processing, the new radiological pictures can only reach their valuable potential because they have been mediated. Dead or alive, the examination of the body has become just another example of virtual gamesmanship. This is the working milieu of the modern doctor who moves in this world as often as not far more seamlessly than with a stethoscope in hand placed upon the chest of the real thing. If Vesalius shifted the focus of anatomy from the word to the visual and the tactile, it has now reverted through the new digital imagery to a cyber biblioteca corpus humani, a liber corporum. For the macroscopic anatomy, technology has rekindled an artistic response. 
one who's promoted his own brand of anatomical art, is the German pathologist Gunther von Hagens, whose travelling show Body Worlds, Die Körperwelten, displays human bodies that have been dry-preserved and injected with a complex of synthetic polymers and which are then choreographed into vivacious and even salacious poses. These are the subject of the first uh, part of another podcast in this series. Van Huggins Plastin's pirouette and pole vault their way across the stage of his exhibits with a particularly vibrant athleticism for corpses. And in one of his shows, a male and a female plastinate are frozen in flagrante delicto in the middle of sexual intercourse. Here was a maverick, Van Hagens, who in his youth had been incarcerated in an East German prison for illegally trying to enter Czechoslovakia. In Heidelberg, he developed his revolutionary technique preserving bodies by by replacing the water content of their tissues with a high-pressure injection of plastic. It was a highly lucrative product which was dry, odourless and durable and which could almost perfectly substitute for the cadaver. It became so popular that every anatomy department stocked its collections with these expensive surrogates. Here in the case of Van Hagen's was anatomy also as a prescriptive art. Van Hagen's declaring his plastinates as models for democratising the body and proclaiming them as gateways to a more perfect knowledge by the public about health and disease. In his quest, he demonises the blights of the modern age, smoking and obesity, and shows his audience the precise organic effects of both on his plastinated bodies. He's even filled a warehouse in Guben, East Germany, with them in what he calls his plastinarium. He promises an experience that would not only suspend disbelief, but perhaps even death itself. But the ethicists and the clerics twisted themselves into knots over the morality of this showmanship, and they argued about the very nature of informed consent. Would anyone, the critics asked, freely donate their bodies to him if they would have known that he would position them so disrespectfully? Well, maybe I might. Regardless, the people couldn't stay away, and over a decade, more than 30 million people came to see his plastinus. The spectacle of his body worlds catapulting the cadaver into the public imagination. By any measure, Die Korperwelten was the most successful exhibit in history. Not content with this, in 2002, as a ticketed live televised event on the BBC, he staged the first public autopsy conducted in England in over a 100 years. But the opprobrium was as much about the showman as the show, at times the anatomy taking a back seat to a perverse art. In Hamburg... He stage-managed his displays not in a gallery or an exhibition institute or a university, but rather in their erotic art museum, and he invited strippers to the opening. He deconstructed the narrative of the cadaver away from the realm of the scientific, and he cleared the runway for artists like Damien Hirst and Michael Quinn. They were able now to use the body as an open canvas and to revel in the attracting power of dead flesh. The podcast ends with a vignette, perhaps more a brief list, of a selected group of sculptors and performance artists who rejoice in the asymmetry of human deformity and who, in their art, have exploited the appurtenances of death. Part of their motivation is no doubt to induce shock and awe, but also perhaps they have a desire to transcend those elements of mortality which drive our fears of death itself. For want of a better collective now, and I've somewhat unfairly called them the artistes macabre. Finally in our story, one generic acceptance in the history of corporeal dissection has been the sublimation of female gender. Dissection has always been a distinctly genderized activity, and the nature of anatomical female definition is the subject of the final podcast in this series. It's no accident that the frontispiece of Vesalius's Fabrica shows him proudly opening the splayed corpse of a woman. Here he is pointing out to a boisterous but entirely male audience the location of her inner reproductive organs. Vesalius in his task appears like any great explorer on the brink of a new territorial discovery and he emerges as the keeper of some extraordinary secret about women that seemingly only he can impart. Our journey of human dissection starts with an overview of how anatomists came to see art as an essential instructional element 
in getting their message across.